get out your Bible if you have one. Open it up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, or you might not believe that what she just read is actually in the Bible. And uh, we are going to talk about it. So I've been in this series in 1 Corinthians, and, uh, and we have done some work in it. And here we come to this passage uh, that is in this category uh, of speaking to uh, marriage, sex in marriage. And, uh, you know, I, I love Sunday mornings. I, I love being together. And one of my favorite things about Sunday morning is that you get to connect uh, with people, some of whom I've not gotten to see uh, during the week. And so the way it typically happens, right, is you see somebody coming and you speak a word to them. So there's that way of connecting. And then you, you shake a hand. And, and for some people, uh, we're at a place where I'll give you a little side hug, you know, or uh, if you're a dude and, and we're there, you know, I'll give a full on like frontal hug and I'll even give the, you know, the three pats, you know, um, and, you know, the boom, 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 just to make sure that he knows that we're, I'm not like snuggling and we're just doing like a hug, you know, and, and there's something that happens there. Some of you today I met for the very first time. So I came up and I just spoke a word to you, you connected and you spoke a word to me and, you know, maybe we shook hands and, and there's something within each of us that really desires to have connection. And do you know that that God uh, has made us in his image. And one of the ways that we most live out the image of God is by living in deep, meaningful connections. And a reason that we search the Bible for instruction on how to live is that we believe that God has designed us to connect with him and to one another. And that's, that's, that's where we'll experience a lot of joy and a lot of fulfillment. And the reason that we abstain from behaviors that sever connection, we'll call them sins, is because uh, they keep us from being connected, living connected with other people. And so I wanted to set that as the framework for this morning, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we've been in 5, 6, and 7, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about how sex is designed by God to build meaningful connections between people. The question on the table is, how do we enjoy sex in a way that builds connections instead of destroying connections? Now, let me just get it out there that this conversation in the church, it might seem strange. It might make you feel a bit uncomfortable. But to me, it just makes sense that we would look into the scriptures and we wouldn't skip over parts of letters like this that we've been studying uh, that just because it's a little uncomfortable maybe for you to hear somebody talk about. The world is talking to you every day about sex. And so what we're doing is we're saying, okay, God, what do you have to say about sex? And I uh, want to handle this very carefully, but truthfully, I just want to let loose what's in the Word of God and trust that the Holy Spirit of God is going to allow it to land into your heart as firmly or as softly as carefully as he wants it to. So with all that in mind, I'm going to actually say a prayer and just ask God to enable me to do that once again, and maybe you would do the same. Would you bow your head, and before I say a prayer, I'm going to give you like 30 seconds, and would you just say a prayer to God in your heart and ask him to speak to you today? God, it is with great confidence that I stand with your word before your people. But it is with some fear and some trembling 
that I also stand before your people, recognizing that this passage that we're handling today touches on something deep within all of us. And so God, I just want to say that I need you. And I have some notes put together. I've worked hard on, Lord, you know that. I've put in that time. But just as I'm speaking, God, I submit myself completely to you, to your spirit. And God, would you have your way this morning? No doubt there are some that are here that they're going to hear your word and they're going to feel some shame. I pray that that shame voice would be erased by your grace voice. God, there are some that are here that are going to kind of lean back and feel like, oh, I knew it. The Bible is foolish. God, I just pray that you would just help them to open their minds to the wonder of your word this morning. And so, God, I do stand here and I will release it and trust the results to you. We love you and I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Ray Ortland, a very well-known, very well-respected preacher in his book, Marriage in the Mystery of the Gospel, says this, sex is like a fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it burns the house down. Here's the message of the Bible, and this is the main idea for this morning. Keep the fire within the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. Come on, somebody. I'm going to say it again, and I need at least three amens. And hopefully one of them for my wife. Keep the fire within the marital fire, fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. It's difficult for the Christians in Corinth to see this clearly, God's design for sex and marriage. One reason it was difficult for them to see it so clearly is they were in a city that was known for sexual promiscuity. So there was sexual promiscuity and licentiousness that existed in the city and then Paul had gone in with the message of who Jesus is and his call to repentance and faith and following Christ, and that actually had an impact on the way people were lived. It wasn't about just enforcing people with a set of rules. It was about helping people to live within the boundaries God designed so that they can experience connection with God and with others the way God intended. And so this is the environment that the Christian uh, church in Corinth was birthed. In fact, in the city of Corinth, there was a most prominent, uh, a very prominent site uh, and it was, this, it was at the Acro-Corinth, and it was this sharp, uh, high mountain which rose to a height of 1,800 feet. And on the summit of this steep mountain stood the temple of, anybody know? Aphrodite? I just kind of see who the nerds were, none of you, I guess. Um, it's, it's a symbol, it was a symbol of lust, and it pervaded the mind of the city. And in old Corinth, the temple maintained a thousand priestesses, they called them, who amounted to no more than common prostitutes. So Corinth was not the only one, but it was a city that was known for its sexual freedom, liberation, licentiousness. And so it's in this environment that the Christians are trying to figure out how God wants them to live. They're trying to receive the instruction about who Jesus is and what it means to be connected to God and what it means to be connected to others for God's glory. And, and it was confusing to them. They were trying to figure it out. And so on one extreme within the Christian community in Corinth, there were some Christians who lived carelessly. They underestimated the need for sex to remain between a husband and a wife. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. And you can go back and listen to the other sermons on uh, podcast.neartownchurch.org. 
I preached a sermon on it, and then also uh, Andrew preached a sermon on it. And, and essentially what this group of people at this extreme said was that, that, that sex, there were no boundaries. It was basically a free-for-all. And there was a man within the church who was uh, having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul's saying, this is a big deal. And so he says these words, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Or in verse 19 of the same chapter. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, sex affects our heart. It affects our inward being, not just our bodies. It's not just about a good feeling physically. We cannot separate out the way we feel physically from what's going on in our souls. And sex plays into all that. And sin is, first and foremost, a disorder of the heart. Therefore, it has a big impact on sex. So there are rules. And on the other end of the spectrum, there was this one that said there's, there's no rules and we can do basically whatever. And on the other end of the spectrum, there were some Christians that were trying to do it so right, they essentially said it's sex is wrong even between a husband and wife. This is the question that Paul's addressing in verse 7. So some of you all read that verse 7, and it said, it is good for a man not to have a sexual relationship with a woman. And just reading it, you're like, whoa. I'm not down with the Bible anymore. But what Paul is saying is like, this is what some of you have said. Now let me tell you what God has to say about this. So this is what he's addressing. He responds to the question related to marriage. And he also says some things about singleness. And I know we have some single people in here. And, and this sermon is not about singleness. Uh, and, and Paul does talk about singleness. And he actually says that, that singleness is a gift. And he says, I wish that you had the gift like I have. To be able to be single. But he also says that if you're single and you're burning in lust and wanting to have sex with another person, then you ought to get married because it's better to be married than it is to be single and sin sexually. And over the years, I've met a few people who have, feel like they have the gift of singleness. But for the most part, most single people that I've met say that there is a day when I want to be married. And so let's focus on the part of this and the message on singleness and how that's a gift from the Lord is for another day. We'll do it. But let's focus on the part of this passage that is regarding sex as a part of marriage. So the first mention of sex in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is what it was like for the husband and wife in the garden before sin entered. Jesus quotes this passage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, when he says, Have you not heard that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about this passage uses this idea of the man and the woman shall leave their father and mother and they shall become one flesh to help paint a picture of the intimacy and love relationship between a husband and wife and how it's like the love that Christ has for his church. So the phrase I want to just briefly talk about is this phrase, the two shall be one come one flesh. And it means two bodies uniting, but it means so much more. It's more than just physically uniting of two bodies. So generally, 
marriage is a union between two people so profound that they virtually become a new single person. This is physically happening in sex, but it happens according to the Bible within marriage because it's about something more than just physical unity. So the word united, and in older translations, maybe you'll see the word cleave, like leave and cleave, means to make a binding covenant or contract. This covenant in marriage, it brings the aspect, every aspect of these two lives together, not just themselves physically. They merge into a single legal, social, economic unit. They're no longer independent, which is one reason Paul can say the woman's body does not belong to her. The man's body does not belong to him, which I know when you hear that, especially in our day, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, I belong to my body. I have control of my body. That is true. But in marriage, essentially what you're saying is that I am not in total control. I do not solely own my own body. I'm not independent of my own body. I actually, my wife owns my body and I own hers. We belong to one another because we're no longer two, but we're one. And so the Bible goes on to say that, you, that you're not to unite with somebody physically unless you're also willing to unite with them emotionally and personally and socially and economically, legally and spiritually. Don't be physically naked and vulnerable to another person until you've become vulnerable in every other way because you made a promise in marriage. So in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes regarding this question about sex in marriage. Again, because there are some who are saying, hey, it's not good even if a man and a woman are married for them to have sex. And no doubt the intentions of these people in the church are, you know, they're good. I mean, they're, they're trying to do right, right? But, but it didn't quite answer the question. I mean, th- this solution of, well, there's a lot of sexual promiscuity and immorality around us, so what we need, as Christians need to do is like not do it at all would be similar to us looking out and saying, wow, there's a lot of obese, obese people around us, so let's not eat at all. Nobody wants to do that, right? There is a way forward when we think about sex, that we can live it out and experience it the way God intended that is different than what's normally or culturally accepted. So Paul is going to give them this Christian sexual ethic. And here's, here's the big idea. After a man and a woman marry, they should have sex with one another. The, the phrases have his own or have her own, that means exclusively with one another. Now two things that make this radical as Paul's telling the Corinthians this, there's two, two kind of realities culturally more specific than what I've already been. And two things that I ought to inform you of. First of all, in, this, in the Romans' view, in this culture, women were legally considered the possession of their husband. And they could only have sex with him. But it was culturally acceptable for him to have sex with multiple partners. Also, Men were to take wives in order to have legal heirs. But sexual pleasure was had by men uh, outside of this marriage union. So I would have a wife, but I wouldn't have to necessarily have sex with her. I could have sex with her to have kids. But it wasn't about me enjoying sex with her. In fact, I could go out and get pleasure in some other way. That's essentially what the Roman view was. So when Paul comes in and says, you belong to one another. 
and you have a responsibility to satisfy each other's sexual desires. This is an incredible break from tradition culturally. It's very, very different. It's radical. You get to have sex with one another. You should have sex with one another. And you do not get to have sex with anybody outside of marriage or anybody outside of the person that you're married to. Now, some of you on the surface would say, well, yes, of course, that makes sense. But the reality is that there are people every single day, and some of you are here, that you're tempted to give yourselves away sexually to somebody that's not your spouse at work, maybe a neighbor, Facebook friend. So we have to like press into this and say that, that God's design for sex between a man and a woman in marriage is for a purpose. And the greater purpose is so that the intimacy and the enjoyment and the fulfillment that God intends for two people, the beauty of that can exist. And it will not exist if we choose to do it some other way. When Paul says to the Corinthians, he is to have his own wife and she is to have her own husband. Nothing like this has ever been said before. And essentially what he's saying is, sex with you is a privilege you give to your spouse. I mean, look at your spouse right now and say, sex with me is a privilege. Just kidding, don't do it. It's going to get weird in here. The issue in Corinth is that they've treated sex so carelessly. The reality is that it's very important. This is a revelation of God through Paul to them, and one we must heed, we must listen to. Because in our own society, there's confusion as it relates to what is okay and what is not okay sexually with our bodies. And I'm not, just to be clear, I'm not the one that wrote the mail. I'm just the one delivering it this morning. And part of it is because I live in the same world you do, where it seems as, as what's normal and is accepted is everybody gets to make their own rules. Well, in a culture where everybody's getting to make their own rules sexually, we see over time the trajectory of that, and that is chaos, and that is the, the next big sexual high and the next big sexual deviation, which is one reason we live in a city that ha- is one of the major hubs in the world for human trafficking. Because at some point, i got to have a partner that I've actually paid to have sex with me, and because I can't find anybody to have sex with me by paying them, I actually am going to take a slave and have sex with them. So the trajectory for living a sexual ethic that is outside of the Christian sexual ethic is complete destruction and disconnection in our city between people and immorality. And Paul's saying, hey, the way that you get to do it is you get to, in marriage, you get to unite physically, emotionally, spiritually, legally, and in that marriage, you have the privilege of giving yourself away to your spouse and they have the privilege of giving themselves away to you. Verse 5, it's interesting. It says, do not deprive one another. Except for, he does allow something, except for perhaps for an agreed on limited time so that you can devote yourselves to prayer would be in a reason that you would deprive one another. Like we're not going to have sex this week. We're just going to commit ourselves to prayer. That would be maybe what you'd say. But it would actually, in fact, be unbiblical for one of you to say, I am not willing to have sex with you as my spouse over a long period of time, unless both of you agreed on it. 
that's going to radical, right? That kind of presses us a little bit because I realize that, that, that some of the things that go into having a healthy sexual relationship, uh, they're complex. And sometimes it requires us to, to face pro- other problems in our marriage, which we'll talk about in just a minute. If you choose to deprive the other person, it's going to make it difficult for them to resist the sin uh, of, of sexual immorality. I've heard it said, you can make your spouse stop wanting to have sex with you, but you can't make them stop wanting to have sex. This is the way God has made our bodies. Sex is not a bad thing. It is God's idea. And it is a way that two people can experience a heavenly connection, a taste of the divine. So Paul is clarifying this Christian sexual ethic. And and you might read this passage and you might say, wow, it sure does sound like Paul is saying that the reason for sex within a marriage covenant is so that each of the people will not give in to sexual immorality. Like the reason we do sex is so that we won't sin. And you would not be wrong if you read that in the passage. But this passage is one of many passages in the Bible that set the idea, uh, the activity of sex forward as being God's idea and as being something that's wonderful and beautiful and mysterious and holy. Uh, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Talking to a husband. And this rejoice in the wife of your youth is talking about sex. Verse 19, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. The Bible has a very high view of sex. And so there are some that are outside the Christian faith that are say, I'm not into Christianity because it's trying to suppress people sexually and trying to hold them down. No, in fact, what God is saying is, hey, it was my idea. And what I want to do is let it loose the way it's intended in a way that you'll most fully and deeply experience it. And if that passage in Proverbs is not enough, then one of the first Corinthians is not enough, just go read the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is a book, and most of the provocative sayings in there, erotic sayings in there, are from the woman to the man about how she wants him. It's very similar to the way my wife talks to me every morning when I wake up. She's, she, she, she's a biblical, godly woman. Except for she doesn't say that I'm like a deer, a graceful deer. It's more like you're like a rhinoceros. <laughs> so with all this in mind, let me just conclude with a few ideas here. Sex is God's idea. Enjoy it God's way. Now, I know that the modern person is going to hear this and they're going to come to the conclusion, and some of you are here, and you're like, oh, Russell, you're narrow-minded, you're naive, you're old-fashioned, you're clueless, etc. Let me tell you something. Every single week, every single week in the real world, I talk to people who are suffering the consequences of poor sexual decisions. Every single week. It's my life. I realize that some people may think that because I have been in the church a long time that I'm clueless, but you know what? I spend a lot of time with people that are outside the church and a lot of time with people that are inside the church that are quietly suffering from the consequences of their poor own sexual sin. What I'm saying to you is it's a lifeline. It's a lifeline to God's way because you can experience something in marriage that will meet a deep need within you to connect with another person. Sex is God's idea, and you ought to enjoy it God's way. When two people have committed themselves to lifelong marriage, that's the way it's meant to be. You you can choose to do it some other way. You can. 
but it will negatively affect your heart and ability to build deep, meaningful connections with somebody. You can meet a girl or meet a guy and drink enough that you will get rid of all your inhibitions and go home with them. You can do that. But let me tell you something. Don't think for a moment that it doesn't erode your soul. This is God's concern. Because he wants you to live the life that you were meant to live. Meaningful connections to him and to others for his glory. A second idea that I would like to begin to draw this to a close with is, unless your marital relationship is in good condition, sex doesn't work. I do a lot of premarital counseling, and one of the things that I always tell them is, there's a book, I've not actually read the book, I just know the title, because the title is like, okay, I get it. And it's by this very well-known author, um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but anyway, the title of the book is Sex Begins in the Kitchen. And that means that the relationship that it, you have with your spouse that begins in the way that you talk to each other at the beginning of the day is, is what impacts whether or not your sexual relationship in the evening, afternoon, or whatever actually works in the way it's meant to. If you want more out of your married sex life, you should probably look at non-sexual realities in your marriage. Some of you feel dissatisfied sexually in your marriage, and what you want to do is say, well, if your body were a little different, or, um, or if our technique was a little different, or if we introduced in some other people you know, some, some images that might help us both, both enjoy it a little bit more. That's the stuff we want to immediately look at. Well, you, don't, you aren't in shape as you used to be. But the reality is, all of that stuff is totally tertiary, secondary to the primary thing that affects your sexual relationship, and that is the condition of your hearts. The non-sexual realities in your marriage affect the way you enjoy or do not enjoy sex. And those are the things that are harder to focus on, and those are the things that take longer to deal with. And that's one reason it's reserved for two people who have said, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to stick with you until one of us dies. That's marriage. I should have said that with a lighter voice. For those of you that are single, you're like, oh, wow, you make marriage sound so great. <laughs> it is great. If sex isn't working, you might need help with how you communicate with one another. You might need help in dealing with some unresolved issue of the past. And your marriage does not have to be perfect, and it'll never be perfect. Amen, married people? It'll never be perfect. But if sex isn't reasonably better over a long period of time, then you need to give some attention to your marriage because it can be. It can be. And this work is difficult. This work is difficult. I've been married 19 years, going on 20 next summer. That's right. And, it, and we have, in different seasons, had... High times and low times. We've had times we feel connected, times we don't feel connected. And there have been moments along the way where we said, I'm going to stick with you, not because I really want to, but because I told you I would, and I told God I would, and I told your father that I would, and, and you know, I, I'm, we're going to stick with this. And we've had to work through the junk in our own hearts so that we show up in the marriage bed as vulnerable, honest, true, in-process kind of people. But that's hard. That's hard work. And so what we choose is divorce or adultery or pornography. That's not the way God intended it. There's so much more. Unless your marital relationship is in good condition, sex doesn't work. 
third idea, this is the third of four to close, is that each partner in marriage is to be most concerned with, not with having their own needs met, but with meeting the needs of the other. And that certainly would include in the marriage bed. We're naturally selfish creatures. But over time in marriage, you'll realize that if both of you are primarily about the satisfaction of the other, you will grow connected in meaningful ways. And it's complex. A plus B does not always equal C in the marriage bed. But over time, if you are thinking, how can I make the other person um, experience all that they're meant to experience and, and you're patient with them and they're patient with you and you're talking over time, you can experience what God has intended. Give yourself away. And this is one like small sliver of the very essence of Christian living, which is to give yourself away for a greater good. This is in fact what Jesus has done for us. God became flesh in the form of a man. His name is Jesus. He lived on earth and walked and he ministered to and cared for and gave himself away to those that could not give anything in him in return. And then he did the ultimate act of giving himself away when he went to the cross and he was crucified. And in a mysterious exchange through faith, our sin goes to him and his righteousness is credited to us. And so in repentance and in faith, we can have our sins forgiven and we can be given new life. Jesus was raised from the dead, which gives us the hope of new life in Christ. And some of you are here this morning, and even as I talk about what the Bible says about sex, you're feeling some shame, you're feeling some guilt, and you're like, wait a minute, I have done it some other way. And you're wondering, is, is there any way that I can experience some of what God has intended with, with the sex that is available within the covenant of marriage? And what I would say to you is, yes, you can. You can be restored. But it's not just about your sexual re- reality being restored. It's about your whole life being restored through Christ. It's about God doing something that you could never do for yourself, and that is to pull you up out of the wickedness of your own sin and your poor decision-making and setting you on his knee and looking you in the eye and say, I sent my only begotten son to die for you so that you could experience the life that I intend for you because that's how he will ultimately get glory. Sex is just one part of that. But for some of you, there's, it's, sex is so deep, it's, it's in the brain, and, and, and it's, there's a part of our brain that processes all of it, and all of you come in here with a different sort of upbringing or family of origin regarding sex. Some of you, this is the most you've ever heard an adult talk about sex openly in a healthy way. What I'm saying to you is that God's word speaks to it. Sex is a gift. You can experience it, but you won't experience it unless you are connected to God through Christ. That is the Christian gospel. And Jesus gives himself freely away to you. And then you get married, and then you and your spouse get to have sex, which is a covenant renewal ceremony. Every time a man and a woman in Christ have sex once they're married, That is essentially like them renewing the covenant, the promise of the two becoming one flesh again and again and again. 
And sex just gets better in time if you understand how holy and sacred and important it is. And you don't have to do it this way. Some of you will choose not to do it this way. You don't have to. You can go and freely have sex with whoever you want if that is your choice. But what I'm saying to you is there is a better way. It's God's way. Please, I beg you, I plead with you, do it God's way for your good and for his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe respond to it in faith and obedience. Would you bow your head? So it just makes sense in this moment that I would give you some time for those of you that have been convicted that I have chosen to do sex in some way other than what God has intended for you to have a time to repent of your sin. And don't feel like repentance is a bad thing. It's not. It's a thing that is... Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful gift from God that God is saying. He's holding out his hand and he's saying to you, I want to, to forgive you. I want to take off of your mind and your heart the shame and the guilt and the fear that's caused by your poor decision making. So repent. You say, how do I repent? You essentially would talk to God in prayer and you'd say, God, I have, I've done this and I ask you to forgive me. I've done it in some way other than your way. And some of you may be here, and I have no one in mind as I'm saying this, but let me just say, some of you may be here and you're dating, and you've been doing it some way other than God's way, and you want to say, hey, you know what, from this point until the day we decide to get married, or the day we decide to not get married, um, we're going to abstain from doing it in any other way than God's way, because we want to put our hope in Christ and the word of the Lord. So maybe that's your decision. How, what do you need to repent of? Some of you have... Some of you have, are married and, and you've been exploring sexual pleasure in ways outside of God's design for your marriage. And you want to repent of that. Do it. Now's the time. And this is the best, I can't imagine a better time to do it. God, we respond now. And God, in these next uh, five minutes, ten minutes. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do something that I could never manufacture by ordering of my own words. And God, uh, I just know that all of us will be tempted to kind of go through the motions here. I am sometimes in response, tempted to go through the motions. So I just pray that your Spirit would break through that and really minister deeply to our hearts, God. There are some here that have confessed sin to you, and God, what they need to feel is your presence. They need to hear the truth of the Scripture, what says there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so, God, we want to respond in these ways today. And I ask you to move. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.